Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. Since it's only you and I here, I can tell you honestly that our guest today is one of my favorite people on the planet. And interestingly, you apparently love her too, noting that when she was a guest on the show a few years back discussing psychological safety, her episode went on to have more downloads than any other in our series history. In March of 2020, when workers around the world were first deployed to their homes to work at the onset of the COVID pandemic, there was much confusion, ambiguity around how long remote working would last and how to effectively manage people at a time when it was uncertain, when we'd see them again in person. Knowing that she would have tremendous insight on this for my listeners, I asked Harvard Business School professor Amy Edmondson if she would join me for an emergency ad hoc conversation. And she immediately agreed and we recorded the episode the very next day. When my book was about to be published last fall, I took a shot of liquid courage before asking Amy if she would provide a testimonial. And what amazed me was that she asked to read the book before saying how great it was. More seriously, she took the time to understand the book and wrote a beautiful blurb, which you'll find in your copy of the book at home. I hope you're beginning to realize how remarkable Amy Emmonson is as a person, and I haven't even mentioned that Thinkers 50 this year named her the top leadership expert in the world. So it's a profound honor for me to have her join us for the third time on the podcast, and this time to discuss her brand new book, Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well. If you think back on the greatest lessons you've learned in your life, I dare say you'd point to mistakes you made or even outright failures you experienced as being the source of the learning. Problem is that few of us enjoy failing in even the most meaningless events of life. And so we avoid taking risks. And many of our work cultures openly stress that failure is not an option. It must be avoided at all costs. So how do we square the idea that failures inform us with the insistence that we must never experience them? In Amy's book, she says, we need to reframe how we understand failure on both a personal and cultural level and learn to recognize the crucial distinctions that separate good failure from bad. It's not easy or obvious to know how to fail well, but with so many critical and complex issues facing us personally in business and in the world at large, we must learn to frame failure differently as a source of information, as part of our personal development, and as an experience shared by everyone. I recorded my conversation with Amy before recording this introduction, so I can confirm what you might already be guessing on your own, which is she's spectacular in her understanding of failure and in her ability to clearly articulate very useful ideas. Keep an ear out for our discussion of what Amy calls the electric maze exercise that she and other Harvard Business School professors give their MBA students. Students routinely fail at it for the same reasons that we would. But here's the key. Once you learn the game, you'll have an entirely new and enlightened way of treating failure in your own life and career going forward. And with that, let me welcome to the podcast, the very wonderful Amy C. Edmondson. Mark, thank you so much for having me. Well, this is our third time, and that's yes. um, pretty rare. So I always look forward to our conversations and always feel like I'm in this moment of gratitude having you join me. So thank you in advance of our conversation. 
I feel the same way. And I always love following you on social media also. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I'm honored by that. So you've written a book about failing well, <laughs> when the truth is that many of us actually hate the idea of failing and will avoid taking certain risks in order to prevent embarrassing ourselves and threatening our reputations at work. So let's start off by you helping to reframe failure with a more positive and helpful mindset. You got it. And I think the best way to do that is to attack the confusion head on. There's The confusion comes from people saying wonderful things like fail fast, fail often. Mm. That's how you innovate, which are absolutely true and incomplete. Whereas the other camp is saying, I'm sorry, I live in the real world. Failure is not an option in my job or my family or what have you. And this confusion stems from the vast territory that the word failure encompasses. It literally encompasses everything from a basic mistake that leads to a deeply undesired outcome all the way over to a brand new scientific discovery where you're testing a hypothesis and alas, you were wrong, the experiment fails. And I think it's easy to see when you put it in that context that there are good kinds of failures and not so good kinds of failures. Mm -hmm. And part of our fraught relationship with failure stems from a lack of clear categories and definitions to sort this out. Go a little bit deeper on that. So I identify three kinds of failures, and only one is what I would call the good kind, the kind we should welcome. These I refer to as intelligent failures. And they are the kinds of failures that happen, like it or not. We still don't like it most of the time, but they happen in new territory in pursuit of a goal where you've done your homework. You're not just randomly throwing darts at the problem. You've thought about it and you're genuinely testing something that you hope will work. And finally, the failure has to be as small as possible to call it intelligent, that you don't overspend resources or do it in a place that has extremely high risk to reputation or, or human safety. So it's that's an intelligent failure. New territory, hypothesis-driven, as small as possible in pursuit of a goal. It's hard to argue with that, right? Scientists, inventors, you know, celebrity chefs, elite athletes, they do that for a living. They're constantly pushing the envelope on what might be possible. And they understand that in doing so, they will likely significantly you know, experience significant percentage of failures, different fields, different amounts of failures. So let's put those to the side. Let's call them discoveries. As I said, they're still usually not entirely welcome. Most of us would rather be right than wrong. We'd rather succeed than fail. But if you're a scientist, you understand that this comes with the territory. Now, the other two kinds are both, for the most part, preventable, not 100%, but they have a high degree of preventability, and they are basic failures and complex failures. Basic failures are simple. They are the undesired results of a simple human error, a slip, a failure to follow the recipe. You mixed up sugar and salt. You're getting lousy cake as a result. So it's a failure in known territory where there was, in fact, existing knowledge about how to get the result you wanted. But somewhere along the way, an error happened. 
it's always your responsibility to dig into how and why, especially for the goal of preventing it next time. And then finally, complex failures are multi-causal. We can think of them as the perfect storm. They're the failures that happen when not one, not two, but generally a handful of factors come together in just the wrong way, none of which on their own would have produced the failure. You know, a supply chain breakdown in the midst of a global pandemic is a complex failure, has aspects of the weather, aspects of labor shortages, aspects of technology misfires, all coming together just the wrong way, just the wrong moment to produce a failure. And in my book, I describe sort of basic, none of them terribly exciting or earth shattering, but basic best practices for minimizing the basic failures and the complex failures in our lives to as small as they can be. And I would say right kind of wrong, that's the title, the major emphasis is on how do we become more comfortable with those beeps going forward in new territory so that we can stretch and grow and in a sense, live more adventurous and I believe joyful lives because we are less just allergic to being wrong and less allergic to the failures that happen, especially in new territory. You could not have set that up any better for where I want to go. Good. We'll just start with the intelligent failures. Mm -hmm. Like we have a problem just failing. We have a problem with when mm -hmm. anything not going our way, we feel like shaking our fists at the gods and, and we take it badly, which is, in my, my estimation, a limitation from a leadership standpoint. Like we need to look at it as data and say, okay, this isn't working. So what do we do? As opposed to letting our minds overwhelm us, which we'll talk about, but you have this information in your book from the London School of Economics that shows that over the past 27 years, there's been a substantial increase in the percentage of people who feel that they need to be perfect. Mm, mm. So is this a societal trend, a generational one? And from a leadership standpoint, how do we unwind it? It's a great question. Of course, I don't know the answer, but I'll go out on a limb and take a guess. I think it's a combination of at least in the West, generational trend toward helicoptering and snow plowing and, you know, protecting our children from experiencing failure. There's the sort of trophy for showing up generation. There's grade inflation, right? There's sort of a lot of things that parents and even teachers do to shield children from experiencing failure that then they grow up and there may be just more more aversion and allergy to failure than ever before. And there is no way to avoid the conclusion that social media is exacerbating this generational trend because social media shows us a curated image of other people's lives and experiences. You know, you don't post that ugly picture of yourself. You don't post you sitting there at your desk doing your homework. You're posting the sort of glamorous moments, the fun, and it begins to look like everybody else's lives are full of just nothing but wonderful successes and, and your own feels problematic in contrast. So I think those are two big factors that sort of are leading to more perfectionism, more anxiety about looking good, more anxiety about succeeding soon. You know, mm -hmm. people are less willing to have that expectation of delayed success. You know, I'll do a lot of things now that will ultimately come around to be rewarding or put me where I want to be. Curious, as a professor at Harvard, 
Do you ever feel compelled to share that insight with your students sort of as an offset to perhaps what they may have been raised with? Yes. I mean, obviously, these are hugely successful students and, yep. you know, they are the perfectionists. But do you do that? Are you trying to help them? I do. I do. You know, and one thing that comes with a place like Harvard is what's called imposter syndrome, which I know you're familiar with. And that's it's even more rampant at a place like Harvard, because as you said, the students who get into a place like Harvard Business School have had very high track records of success. And that can make you even more anxious about both that track record, you know, sort of coming to a sudden unexpected fault or looking to your right and looking to your left and thinking, well, I'm the admissions error. You know, I'm, I'm good, but secretly I know I'm not that good. And so it's kind of even more fraught, I believe. Mm. My son was a all American water polo player in high school and he ended up going to Berkeley mm. And when he got there, he found out everyone on the team, right. you know, yes, and exactly. it kind of totally freaked him out. Right. You know, it was like, I'm not the big man on campus anymore. That would be unnerving, right? Sports, absolutely unnerving. And, you know, we have at Harvard College, this sort of corresponding syndrome there, and Berkeley has it too, is everybody was a valedictorian. They thought they just had unquestioned sort of success by the time they were leaving high school. And then they show up and, you know, half the people they meet were valedictorians. So, oops. So I'm in your class. I'm 25 years old. And this is the moment to share this insight with me and with members of my class. What do you say in terms of preparing them Mm. to deal with leadership failures of any kind. The complex ones, let's leave off Mm -hmm. the table right now. Okay. But just the intelligent failures and the basic failures Mm -hmm. that just Mm -hmm. come with living in this world, how Mm -hmm. do you teach them to, and I may be getting ahead of myself here because I know some of the answers (laughs) from having read your book, but in terms of just centering and seeing failure as sort of a normal thing and not having a, an emotional reaction to it. What do you say? Well, first of all, I will advertise the classroom as the very place where failures should happen. Why? Because it's entirely safe. If we have a conversation about a shuttle tragedy, no one in the classroom will die. The whole point of a classroom or any simulator environment or any sort of, you know, offline environment is here is where we should have our failures so that we can learn enough to prevent many of them in the real world, in action. So I paint the picture of the classroom as a place where if you're not having enough failures, you know, if you're not getting the answer wrong aloud often enough, or if you're not taking risks, comments that fall flat often enough, you're not learning enough, right? This is the place closed doors, you know, Chatham House rules. We should fail all day with each other because this is how we learn fast. So the classroom becomes a microcosm of a place to practice this idea and then realize that, you know, yeah, you have a comment that falls flat. You didn't die. It's somewhere between, you know, just embarrassing and maybe even humorous and you move on and you figure out what about that comment didn't work and you try again. So I frame the classroom that way. And does it resonate? 
It does, I yeah. think. You know, I'm Good. not saying it's easy to do or easy for them to sort of instantly drop their impression management habits of a lifetime, but they get the concept for sure. It's inarguable in a way. Let's fail here so that we don't have to fail out there. And then I believe that it is possible to prevent most basic failures with a handful of best practices that range from checklists to training programs to catching and correcting each other in action. And by basic failures, again, these are ones in known territory with existing best practices or processes. And I believe that the leadership job is to, you know, design and lead organizations that are good at that. And that doesn't mean organizations that are perfect. It means organizations that are quick to catch and correct deviations. And of course, the Toyota production system comes to mind as an exquisite example of that, of the kinds of management thinking and practices that help bring that about. And then I believe that good organizations have a healthy percentage of intelligent failures. Now, what that percentage is will differ based on the context. If you're in a scientific laboratory, I was talking to um, some scientists in a pharmaceutical company the other day, and she said 90% of what we do fails, right? Which is a, a pretty big number if you think mm-hmm. about it. And she said it cheerfully. Like they get it. They know that if they're going to be world changing, world leading in therapeutics for troublesome diseases, you have to be willing in the lab and including up into trials to have some significant portion of things not work. That's what it looks like on the leading edge of any field, and particularly a scientific field. But if I were talking to uh, cardiac surgeons and they told me, hey, we have a 90% (laughs) failure rate, I'd run in the other direction. And of course, that wouldn't happen. So there's an intuition about this that intellectually people understand. The problem comes in the fact that emotionally, you know, the emotions don't keep up with that clear-eyed assessment. And so even though it's easy to say scientists have to be comfortable failing 90% of the time, they all prefer to be right than wrong. Once again, right? They would prefer to succeed than fail. Of course they would. So what I'm trying to get my students to understand is you must A, welcome intelligent failures and B, help others do the same. Your leadership job is to make them acceptable, discussable, and even celebrations because you have gotten a step closer to what will work every time you discover something smart that didn't work. I love that. Just to pin this down here, this is not just a Gen Z or millennial issue in terms Mm -hmm. of leaning into perfection. You tell the story in your book that and I think you've actually mentioned this here before, that when you're speaking to audience, you'll ask them, hey, how many failures in your organizations do you think can be considered blameworthy? And it's a nominal percentage, you know, one, two percent, basically right. none. And then mm-hmm. you ask those same people how many failures get treated as blameworthy and the number skyrockets to 70 to 90 percent. Right. So it's not a generational thing. It's a management thing. Like, And I've worked in organizations where you could be a star and then you make a mistake Mm -hmm. and you get Mm -hmm. paddled for it. Exactly. Which is an error, Mark. That's an error, right? An organization where that happens is making an error because they're sending a strong signal that really around here, it's not worth taking risks. In which case, you're basically sending the message that we're going to be out of business at some point in the future. So 
this is a very much of a leadership audience listening to this, reinforce it one more time. So, <laughs> and speak to it from the context of psychological safety. Yeah, well, I have interacted with, as you know, so many executives, and I would say essentially all of them that I've had the pleasure to meet are well-meaning. And they feel torn by this sense of this pressure for endless high performance at the same time, how do they accommodate the messages that, you know, failure is part of learning and innovation and so forth? So the message I try hard to get across so that they then can get it across in their organizations is that when you say failure is not an option or mm. given the trying times that we are in right now, it is really important that everything go well. Like right now, we don't have the slack for failure. So we'll do that innovation thing another time. What happens is not that failure suddenly goes away and people magically become capable of perfection. What happens only is that you won't hear about it. Mm -hmm. And that, in a way, is the worst thing that can happen. Because when you're in the dark, when you're not hearing the straight truth about what's really happening out there, you're quite vulnerable to much larger failures. You're vulnerable to larger visible headline-grabbing failures. And that's what psychological safety is all about. Psychological safety describes an environment where whether you like the news or not, you know your job is to convey it and you know people will be receptive to it because people will be receptive to truth because of what's at stake. Not because they love bad news, not because they think failure is just terrific, but because they understand that a clear line of sight is mission critical to excellence in the near term and the long term. And so psychological safety is a leadership responsibility. What does that really mean? It means creating the conditions whereby candor is not only expected, but truly practiced. So I work for you and you've given me an assignment and I misunderstood the direction that you gave me and went in an entirely different direction. Mm and came in with what I had produced. And mm. your initial reaction was, you know, I couldn't have been any more clear on the guidance mm -hmm. that I gave you. And so I now have a moment to decide <laughs> how I'm going to respond. What's the guidance yes. that you give to you? Yes. I framed this poorly, but to you. Yes. Well, my instinct, my human instinct, when you come to me with this off, way off the charter report, my human instinct is to say, Mark, I could not have been more clear, mm -hmm. you know, what the heck happened. And by the way, when I say what the heck happened, it's not a genuine question. It's a rhetorical question. What I'm really saying is, why are you such an idiot? Mm -hmm. right? So because that's a non-optimal response and will mm -hmm. produce one result and one result only, which is that you won't be straight with me next time, I'm going to have to mount a different response. And that response will be, even though it's not what I initially feel or believe, it has to be, I wonder what I did or said that contributed to this confusion. And then I have to say that out loud. So I'll be honest, right? I'll say, oh, I'm disappointed to tell you the truth, which I actually should always be doing. But so I won't say to tell you the truth. I'm disappointed. This was not what I had in mind. I need to understand what I did or said that contributed to the confusion. Let's get to the bottom of it and then let's move forward as quickly as possible toward the goal. In other words, it's always essential to own your own part. In, even if you believe your part in the confusion is no more than 1% causally responsible, 
it is still powerful to own it, to own your part, because nothing is ever fully unilateral. You know, it's never entirely Mark's fault. And I'm not saying it's entirely Amy's fault, but I am saying I need to own the part of this that was my contribution. And because at the moment I'm in the dark about it, I might need your help getting there. So what did you hear? And let me, and then I guarantee, because you're a smart person, you're a capable person. So am I, we're going to discover where the wires got crossed pretty quickly. And we won't do that again. How do you want me to feel? So after giving you this bad news, and now you've responded with, Mm -hmm. okay, let's understand how it happened. And let's make a plan on how we're going to move forward. How as a leader, do you want me to feel before I walk out of your office? The first word that comes to mind is motivated. I want you to feel motivated to go back out there and get back on the horse. I want you to feel motivated to put it right. I don't want you to feel ashamed or embarrassed. I want you to feel that you learned something, that I was fair and thoughtful and owned my part of the crossed wires. And I want you to have a clearer sense of where we're heading and why that will be, as I said, motivating. All of us are going to have to be constant learners because the darn world keeps changing all the time. So the learning muscles are the ones we're trying to strengthen. And that means also strengthening our capacity to cope with failures, larger and smaller. That's fantastic. Not that you need any confirmation for what you just said, but I will give you some anyway for the audience that very early in my career, I still don't know what they saw me, but they gave (laughs) me some opportunities to do some pretty extraordinary things, but they were all pioneering. Mm. And I tend to be very hard on myself, which is not necessarily a strength, but particularly Mm -hmm. when you're in your early 20s, it's not. So I was in the intelligent failures that you would expect would come Mm. with pioneering and trying experiments and doing things. But every time there was a failure, I took it hard and I had to report back and say, "Okay, this didn't work and here's why. And and perhaps the best leader I've ever worked Mm. for was a senior executive, but he was sort of overseeing what I was doing. And he just said, okay, what'd you learn? (laughs) And I told him what I learned. He goes, okay, then just go forward. That's great. And so when you say leave motivated, Mm. I left inspired. Like I left inspired because he didn't beat the crap out of me. He didn't Mm. call it out. It was like he understood that mistakes are going to be made and that I'm going to make mistakes. But he also saw the big picture of who he was dealing with, mm-hmm. in my estimation. Like, he knew he had somebody highly motivated that he handpicked to do this. So why would I punish him for doing the work that is going to come with mistakes and failures is the big picture. And I've used that lesson in all of my career because, like, it could have been the opposite. Right. Just like you said, I could have left just feeling completely deflated and maybe even angry at you, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Which sort of takes me away from being motivated. Yeah, make no mistake. I mean, most of us are hardwired to attribute the source of the problem to the other. And therefore, you know, if if I, as your manager in this case, don't make it easy for us to move into a space of mutual learning, you will not learn and you will walk out thinking, I am a jerk, I'm unclear, I'm the problem. And that's pretty much the opposite of inspired, I'd say. Agreed. I had Harvard Medical School professor Robert Waldinger on a few weeks ago, 
And in my heartbeat round, I asked them a question very quickly, you know, these quick Mm -hmm. answer questions. And I said, Mm -hmm. what's something everyone should do once in their life? And he said, fail publicly. And it stunned me, and I I regret not going back and saying clarify that because that's a very provocative response to this question. You know, Mm -hmm. go to Italy, you know, whatever, drive a race car. This one I didn't see coming. So, (laughs) (laughs) but I I thought I'm going to ask Amy that question. What do you think he meant? Well, I can't speak for Dr. Walsinger, but I think it means fail in front of people whose opinions matter to you in a sort of a quasi-public way, meaning, you know, executives in your company or students in your classroom, not fail with your family or best friends. They already know you're fallible. In other words, our ability to fail when or be willing to fail when the stakes are just a little higher reputationally is really important. And I suspect what he meant and what he has learned in his amazing research is that once you do that, you're free. You know, you're you're mm-hmm. free. It's almost like, well, mm-hmm. oh, it's not quite the worst. Obviously, there are many, many worse things that can happen, but you become less tied up in knots, you know, less risk averse, more able to play to win rather than play not to lose. Because you've sort of had this public failure. So you go, okay. I didn't love that, but hey, I'm still here. I bounced back. It didn't kill me, right? Didn't kill me. And I don't want to say it makes you stronger, but makes you less anxious. And being less anxious about failure is the secret sauce to living and working more joyfully. Thank you. Glad I asked you. Um <laughs> At the beginning of your book, you describe research that you performed as a doctoral student. You were mm-hmm. studying medication errors at the Harvard Medical School in a hospital nearby. And your hypothesis was that teams that worked well together would produce fewer errors. And while you were proved wrong in your hypothesis, the discovery that you made in the process effectively led you to what I think is your life's work in psychological safety. So I saw some serendipity in reading this story and also thought that it really applies to like sometimes mistakes turn out to be good things. Like the failures that we have actually educate us in ways that propel us into directions that we wouldn't ordinarily have gone or would not have thought to go. So tell us about the study, how your experimentation led to what I think is a rather unexpected outcome. Sure. So I was sort of doing almost a derivative study, derivative on the work that had been done in aviation with cockpit crews in simulators that showed that better teamwork, you know, pilots who had more experience working together as a team had fewer failures and errors in the simulator experience. So I had the opportunity to test whether healthcare teams that showed better teamwork based on a validated survey would have fewer medication errors. It seemed pretty straightforward. Of course they would. If you know anything about healthcare delivery in a hospital setting, it's very interdependent, lots of coordination, you know, really lots of handoffs, lots of teamwork to get it right. So I used a validated survey to measure the teamwork. I had independent trained medical investigators collecting error data by going sort of daily to the teams and collecting the information about the failures and mistakes that were happening. Okay, fast forward, I run the analyses, and lo and behold, there's a statistically significant relationship between teamwork and error rates. Unfortunately, it's in the exact wrong direction. In other words, the data are suggesting that better teams, better teamwork, 
have higher error rates, not lower. And this was, make no mistake, a failure. This is a failed research project. This is a failed support for my rather simple hypothesis. Why I'm going to interrupt you just because I'm not clear why. And I read it that way in your book. Why would that be yeah. a failure if you're experimenting? Well, you're in a way, you're telling us all, all listeners, why an intelligent failure is not really a failure after all. It's a discovery. But if you have a hypothesis in a research project, you know, that a particular variable, say teamwork quality, will lead to a particular outcome, say few errors, and the data suggests the opposite, that's a failure. Plus, at first glance, it's saying that you don't want teams to be good. You know, let's have lousy teams, right? Right. Because we don't want errors. I promise you that. We don't want adverse drug events among our hospitalized patients. So, I mean, my first reaction was, of course, where's my mistake in terms of, you know, in the programming? Did I reverse the sign somewhere? So I'm going through everything with a fine-tooth comb. Nope, I haven't done anything wrong. So then I had no choice but to sit and think. And in the thinking suddenly occurred to me, wait a minute, you know, maybe the better teams aren't making more mistakes. Maybe they're more willing to talk about them. You know, in this case, like we had been assuming that the method of collecting error data was foolproof, but maybe it isn't. You know, maybe having trained medical investigators come visit you at work every other day to find out about errors is not such an easy thing. You know, And maybe human beings in that situation would not you know, be so eager to share them, or maybe they'd even hide some of them. And the more you think about it, the more you realize it's easy to hide mistakes, except for those that result in unhideable harm. Where did that insight come from? So you sat and thought, was it intuition? Was it just percolation? Yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's intuition. It's sort of, I mean, I hate to say it to my kind of slow self, but I think it's kind of obvious it's obvious that people wouldn't be overjoyed to report their errors. And then it's maybe less obvious, but not too far behind to say that people hide those errors that are hideable, you know, again, when they can. Now, well, then you might say, well, wait a minute, then why would there be variants? Why wouldn't everybody behave that way? Because everybody's human. Well, then I say in some it's possible, and make a long story short, I would think I was able to show this to a certain degree. In some places, because they're aware of this human tendency, the local leadership is going out of their way to make sure people understand that whatever you do, you know, speak up quickly because there's so much at stake here. You know, they would nurse managers, for example, in the better teamwork and also higher error rate places would say things like, you know, mistakes in this unit are really consequential because of the toxicity of the drugs we use. So we need to speak up quickly. And people bought it. They saw they saw their leaders behaving consistently with those messages. And they believed deeply in the importance of the work they were doing, like, you know, that taking care of patients was more important than their ego, right? Which sounds obvious, but it's not easy to get that in place. And so the insight was, you know, in a way first that maybe people just aren't talking about them, but then more importantly, that there could be serious palpable differences across work groups in the same organization on their norms about error reporting, you know, on their ability and willingness to discuss errors. And that is where 
psychological safety was born as a team level variable. That's the question I wanted to ask you specifically right now. Mm -hmm. Was that the moment? Did you have an epiphany without the language of psychological safety? Yes. You did. Okay. Yes. And I I called it interpersonal climate, which isn't a bad term, but that was the, some reviewers later on thought psychological safety was a better term, but I called it interpersonal climate. It's like, wow, these, these are just really, I don't care if they're both working in the same hospital they're really different interpersonal climates. And I, gee, I'd rather work in that one than that one, even if it's hard, right? It's hard to talk about error. But if I believe it's what we do and I understand how important it is and I can then do it with my colleagues, wow. That's great. So let's apply this to our audience here. This was your doctorate research and so forth. But what I want you to talk about is how workplace managers can intentionally use pilots and experimentation Mm, in mm. order to not just learn and see what would be the best strategy, but also to minimize the risks of failure. Exactly. The whole idea of a pilot is to have failures in a safe, non-consequential place so that you can work the kinks out and then have a product or service launch that is relatively successful. And unfortunately, in many organizations, and I've seen this tendency time and time again, what they're calling a pilot will really be more of a demonstration project. Here's my idea. Look, it's working. And, you know, it's working in part because the thing has been rigged to succeed, right? It's done with the friendliest possible customers or the most high staffing model possible and all goes well. Whereas a good pilot is one that is set up to kind of pressure test the system where we see if it works not only in ordinary circumstances, but maybe suboptimal circumstances. And we find where the weak spots are and then we can design around them. You described something just then that I experienced over and over. Whenever I was in an environment where people were experimenting, I don't know if this is the appropriate term, but they goosed it, (laughs) you know, just the way, right? Yes, They goosed it. And so it was the most optimal environment. And of course, it couldn't Mm -hmm. go wrong. Mm -hmm. But what I saw was sometimes it still went wrong. And then these people were left hanging, you know, because it's like, well, you promised, you implied, you suggested, and then it didn't work. And the first time I saw it done well, the guy knew what he was doing, but he also Mm. told everybody we don't know where this is going to go. This could be yeah. the biggest failure and we need to be prepared for any outcome. We're going to give it our best, but this is for learning. And so he set everybody's expectations so low that when it mm-hmm. went well, it became this very compelling outcome. So that's a sort of a psychological goose mm-hmm. that I think is mm-hmm. fair as opposed to picking the best people and the best customers. Mm-hmm. Do you agree? Absolutely. And I call that framing. He's framing this as something that probably won't work out that well, but we're doing it anyway because we know we're going to learn from it and it's going to create value in the long run. Then not only is it a happy surprise that it went well, we're overjoyed, but let's be clear, it's got to be okay if it really didn't Mm -hmm. go well also, right? Mm -hmm. Either outcome has to be okay. You know why? Because it's just data. You know, we mistake, especially in a sort of uncertain environment, we mistake being right with a better outcome. I mean, it's definitely a psychologically preferred outcome, but it's not a better outcome. Sometimes, like in the case of my own research project as a PhD student, 
the actual outcome was much better than my rather, you know, mundane hypothesis. The actual outcome led me to discover psychological safety as a phenomenon that varied across teams and was very predictive of learning behavior and performance in teams. And that has become quite robust research literature. And that's even made it, as you well know, out into the real world. So if I had been right in my hypothesis, I don't think you would have heard of me. I know, right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So you got to frame it, you know, you have to frame it as data. It's learnings, it's results either way and try to overcome that human desire to prefer being right over gaining value. Well, I probably should have asked you this question earlier, but this is a very practical question, but one that actually is almost spiritual in the sense of how one should be experiencing failure. So we become aware of a problem or a mistake and our minds take over. We panic Mm. or we Mm. overcorrect or we blame and whatever we do, we make things worse. Do you believe what happened here? You know, we're just like all this chaos. And so you have this framework that you call stop, challenge and choose Mm -hmm. as a better remedy. And I think this is really insightful. So tell us about it. Well, I do want to attribute that I got this framework from Larry Wilson, who was, I guess, my second major job after college and wonderful thinker. And he got it from simplifying some beautiful work from sort of cognitive behavior therapy field. Mm. And beautiful work by Maxi Maltzby. But stop essentially is that self-discipline to just pause for a moment and breathe. You know, get yourself ready to challenge your spontaneous, usually unhelpful thinking. You know, that was awful or someone else's fault or whatever. That's our spontaneous, natural human thinking. Just pause so that you're in a position to challenge that. No, it wasn't awful. It was inconvenient, for example. Or no, it wasn't entirely someone else's fault. I, in fact, contributed to that outcome, which is empowering, not demotivating, but empowering, because now I know there are things that I can do. I'm not a victim to circumstances. There are things that I can do differently and do better that will help prevent that from happening again. And then choose is sort of choosing the more thoughtful, learning-oriented response that works best in helping you achieve your goals, your longer-term goals and your mental health. So it's a simple mnemonic, you know, stop, challenge, choose, that requires that pause to get you to see things more clearly and less emotionally and more productively. It's the stop segment that seems to be the most important, right? And the hardest, right? Because you have to interrupt yourself. You have to interrupt the amygdala hijack. You have to interrupt the automatic sense-making, that's hard. Have you learned how to do that? Let me ask it this way. How have you learned to do it? Well, I will say that, like all things, there's a gradient. So that I can do this effectively for, you know, low to medium threat problems and moments. But there are those moments of just, you know, extreme overload and breakdown where I need help from others. Mm. So go into that. When you say you need help from others. Well, I'm just, I'm going to sit here with brain freeze and, you know, amygdala hijack thinking I'm screwed or I'm stuck or I'm almost paralyzed, but I don't know what to do next because I screwed this up or whatever. And you either have a good friend, a good colleague, a good spouse who can talk you down, really, in a sense, be the external force that 
leads you to the stop, challenge, choose response since it's hard to get it launched yourself. That's a great insight. Just knowing that, okay, I'm above I'm above my head right now and yep. I need somebody to help talk me down here. But it's mm-hmm. almost as if you're going into it looking for that very thing. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. I know yes. I need that. And I know right. I'm going to get that and I know it's going to put me back on track and then I'll figure right. this thing out. <laughs> That's right. And we turn to people who can help us with that, who are can be counted on to just be calm in a storm. I love that. So this came up at the end of your book, and I was so impressed with your answer here. Hmm. When we have an expectation, so I have a project or I have something that I'm working Hmm. on, and I'm investing a lot of time and energy and maybe even money, and Hmm. I have expectations, and I think I've done all my homework, and I think I've planned this thing through, and I've got all my precautions nailed down, and on and on and on it goes. And out of the gate, It's either a modest success, like nowhere near the success Mm. that I intended, or it feels like, wait a minute, like I might actually be failing here. Like this isn't going anywhere near. So since we're talking about how to respond to failure, how do you Mm. know when to persist and when to give up? That's, yeah. And I wish I had a kind of foolproof, you know, formula that I could just give our listeners so they would not have to have this problem. But unfortunately, my best answer is A, it's a judgment call. It's not always clear. And it will also depend on your particular situation. You know, how much risk is too much risk for you to persist? But probably the most important thing I can say in making this judgment call is that it is a team sport. Oftentimes, like if you're persisting in a business idea that you just think is the best thing, but you're having failure after failure after failure, there is a point at which, you know, persistence turns into stubbornness. And because we may not be able to trust our own judgment and knowing when that point is, we have to reach out to trusted advisors to sort of say, you know, what am I missing here? And what do you think? You know, is it time for a major pivot here or should I just go give it one more whirl? So you do that thinking aloud, I think, and you get better insight into it. You know, we value persistence, but there is a point at which you're banging your head against the same wall too many times. This is two times in a row where you've emphasized the value of having a trusted advisor, right? Cultivate those friendships, cultivate Mm -hmm, people that mm -hmm. give you sound advice because we all need it. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yes, we do. You tell us about this electric maze exercise you teach at heart. (laughs) Is this something we can discuss? Can you explain this? Yeah. I mean, it's, and again, you know, I'm going to give credit where credit's due. I first was introduced to it by Larry Wilson back at Pecos River Learning Centers. And it is a simple exercise. It is a a small rug, six feet by nine feet, that has a kind of grid on it. And the grid has about nine squares by six squares. And it's been engineered so that some of them beep when you step on them and some of them are silent. And your task, you create a team, it's an exercise in a classroom, and you create a team and you tell them they've got to get from one side of the rug to the other, finding a path of non-beeping squares. And so off they go. And what happens is very quickly. Now, our listeners can immediately appreciate that it's just data, right? When a square beeps, it's just telling you it's not on the path. It's not saying, oh, you're bad and wrong and stupid. But oddly, individuals in this exercise will very quickly find themselves quite averse to experiencing a beep. 
and therefore quite risk averse when it just comes to stepping. Right? The only way to solve this problem, you literally can't figure it out by looking at it. The only way to solve the problem is to step on squares, you know, full on trial and failure. Do they beep or not? And then do your best to sort of as a team memorize which ones work and which ones don't. But people, even on what I call the front lines, meaning no one's ever been there yet, will have one foot in midair, again, just reluctant to step. This slows down their ability to solve the problem vastly, as you can readily imagine. And so when I debrief the exercise, sort of say, well, what were you thinking? Like, what's going through your head when you're on that front line, one foot in midair? And it's either I didn't want to make a mistake. Or I didn't want to let the team down. Both of those are errors of cognition, if you will, because you're not making a mistake when you're getting a beep in new territory. A beep in new territory is an intelligent failure. It's never been here before. No one knows. The only way to find the information is to step. It's as small as possible. Step, step back, right? And so it's not an error. If you think of it as I didn't want to make a mistake, you're not going to do very well in the exercise. Or I didn't want to let the team down. It's a version of the same thing. You're not letting the team down. You're bringing them home this beautiful data point that they should, in fact, applaud because all data are useful. And so it's just a microcosm, this exercise. It allows a group, allows a team to sort of discuss how psychologically and socially we reinforce faulty beliefs that make innovation hard, that make discovery hard. Why do so many of us conflate the beep with a failure of some kind, embarrassment of some yeah. kind, or letting the team down, which is like... And then the second question I guess I have is, how often do you get the guy who's like, just start stepping, man. Like, as soon as we get this information, rare, yeah, rare, real, okay. Yeah, it's rare. It's, you know, it's the occasional sort of engineer who just looks at it and goes, okay, I know what kind of problem this is. You know? But then in a way, that person has to convince the team. And without going into too much detail about the exercise, there's a whole strategy. There's a, you have a planning session for 10 minutes, and then you can't talk. Okay. Mm -hmm. Right. So, and it's described in the book, but it's a detail, but it's an important detail, right? Because otherwise that engineer or just rational person would say, Hey, everybody, it's just a beep, right? But the first question is more important, which is why, you know, why do we have irrational beliefs about something as simple as a beep in new territory? And it's because we get socialized and really reinforced in a very deep way, and especially in our early childhood school system education, to believe that sort of being right is so much better than being wrong. Mm -hmm. right? and, and you get rewarded for having raising your hand and having the math problem right, you know, not for having a beep going forward. And so we internalize the idea that we're supposed to be right and have the right answers and somehow intuit which squares beep and which squares don't beep. And we equate getting it right with being smart, which of course isn't true. Mm -hmm. You know, if you happen to step on a non-beeping square, you're lucky, not smart. You're smart if you stepped on it quickly, you know, got the data and then kept going and kept getting data. But we have what you have to call irrational beliefs about the need to be right even in new territory. It's one thing to want to be right in old territory, to want to follow the recipe for those cookies, to want to assemble that car just perfectly or execute that surgery as absolutely well as possible. It's another thing to believe we're supposed to be that 
perfect in new territory. We're not. We can't. Fantastic. As this is a leadership-focused audience, of course, is there any one final piece of wisdom around (laughs) failure that we haven't discussed that you especially want to emphasize before you go? Sure. I think I'll emphasize that it starts with you. I mean, it starts with you as a leader. Work on your own responses first and do that in a way that invites others in. So specifically, you know, leaders leaders have to go first. They have to say, hey, I made a mistake here. Or, hey, here's this incredibly challenging thing. I don't have all the answers. I'm all ears, right? They have to set the stage to be super clear that they understand the nature of the challenge that lies ahead and that they too are fallible human beings. So as leaders, you're a fallible human being. They know it, you know it, but make sure they know you know it and all will be well. That's so wonderful. On behalf of my audience, really, <laughs> I'm taking I'm taking step forward here and saying, I'm just so grateful you're here. And, I, and that I get to share this with thousands and thousands of people all over the world just makes me very, very happy. But this was an even better conversation and the insights and wisdom that you shared, as always, were wonderful, but they just feel particularly wonderful. So thank you for doing this. And if I can add one thing here, just to punctuate this whole conversation, Mm. we had a problem at the beginning of this (laughs) where we were confused by the time. I thought it was 1130 Pacific time. You thought it was 1130 Eastern time. And so we had to scramble and figure out a different time. But in our email exchange, you said, it's probably my problem. And I'm not so sure. I don't really know how it happened, (laughs) but it was just the the loveliness that you were just like, I'm not making this a big enough problem here. We'll solve this. I'll take my blows here. So you're living very much what you talk about here. I try. I just think that's a wonderful illustration. So Amy Emmonson, thank you so very much. Thank you, Mark. It was an absolute pleasure to be with you again. Best of success with your book. I know it's going to kill. Thank you. As always. But happy summer and thank you again. You too. Thanks, Mark. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Before I say see you next time, I need to say thank you. I am profoundly grateful to you all for supporting our show and for introducing it to others. We just found out that our recent episode with Dr. Robert Waldinger had more downloads in the first month than any other episode we've produced. And that, of course, is because of you. If you're interested in spreading the word even more, you can pick up a copy of my book, Lead from the Heart, buy copies for your team or maybe one for your boss. I also speak at conferences and meetings and consult with high-performing teams all over the world. In fact, I'm actually looking forward to doing just that in Europe for the next couple of weeks. One more thank you goes to the team that brings you this podcast. Randy Yant, Carrie Finnessy, Anna Boynton, and my producer and newlywed, Eric Oz. And a special shout out this time goes to Mr. Ken Boynton, who five years ago sent me a professional microphone in the mail and told me I needed to launch a podcast. It is because of his encouragement that our podcast exists. And finally, remember, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. And it sounds simple, but it really makes a difference. Love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley. See you in the next episode. Thank you.